Thanks, Vic and Brad. Uh, two quick things before I pray. Uh, one, uh, had someone tell me this morning they'd gotten uh, an email allegedly from me as uh, your pastor uh, during this season. Uh, it wasn't, uh, and would encourage you if you should get something like that from the staff, always look to see if the email address is actually upcorlando.org. Uh, this one had a Gmail and something else, you know, on the front end. And, uh, uh, and if you've got a question, call the office. Don't follow links that uh, I have a lot of friends around the country. This kind of thing take, goes in waves, and it seems like in the last few years, uh, whatever you do, don't open links on any email like that that you get if you're not absolutely sure it's, uh, you know, from the church. Secondly, uh, so we don't take time at the benediction, we will have uh, uh, Sherry Penman on this side by the windows and uh, uh, one or both uh, of uh, Chris, Karen Akers on this side uh, to pray with at, uh, at the end. Uh, just some suggestions, uh, we'll say and mention some specific things some weeks, but uh, it may be a personal need, it may be a friend in need, it might be... Uh, Hey, take advantage of this time to lift up one of our missionaries, uh, to lift up the search committee. Uh, we've got VBS coming up. Uh, uh, this is a wonderful time uh, as a way to end the service for some of us to gather uh, uh, individually or in a cluster with those that are helping lead us in prayer at that time. So uh, right after the, the benediction and the, the closing uh, praise, uh, we will have those folks at the windows. That being said, let's pray. Father, we specifically ask that you would do what you call on us to ask you to do, and that is that you would illumine your word by your spirit, that you would give us understanding, uh, that you would apply it to our heart affections, that we might love you and praise you and follow you, and that we and our neighbors might see Jesus more clearly, because we gather and study and pray in his name. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Matthew chapter 17. Uh, we're in a study on the parables. If you're new to us, we, the last uh, three weeks or so, we have looked at some of the parables of the kingdom, mainly in Matthew 13. In one sense, we could argue that every parable is a parable of the kingdom, uh, but we're going to go into some of the parables that might fit better under the heading of parables of grace uh, that in different ways come at the reality that uh, uh, Jesus' kingdom and his grace uh, uh, are not that which comes on in the immediate power and deliverance of the world's ways of using strength, but uh, come at us and uh, help us. He does, uh, and thus the parables teach uh, those kinds of things. So. Uh, here now, as uh, I read, in fact, would you stand as we read through this short text, just to honor God and his word. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 22. As they, the disciples, uh, were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he, Peter, came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth 
take toll or tax from their sons or from others. And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This indeed is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Our heading uh, for the day is trusting Jesus when distressed, but before we look at Peter in that regard, it reminded me of some things that I thought it might be good to remind you. Uh, When we read the scripture, we should always be thinking of uh, the principles of near context when we're trying to understand the passage. Uh, uh, My parents, how about yours, said, uh, look both ways before you cross the street. Uh, And what I'm saying is look both ways before you study a text. Uh, What comes in front of it, uh, what uh, comes after it, the other direction. Uh, And that's part of the near context. But there's also uh, thematic connections. And I uh, don't want to take the time to talk to you about all the crazy things uh, that some of the commentators do trying to understand uh, this parable story saying within uh, and kind of acted out parable as we've talked in past weeks about the range of parables uh, about the fish with the coin in its mouth. Uh, You can imagine the skepticism of some and others, but I think sometimes the problems in understanding the significance of the passage is uh, people don't look at the context. They don't set it in the context. Uh, And uh, Stephen and the worship team have done a good job of helping you set the concept this morning already in talking a lot about the temple uh, and and how that relates to the ministry of Jesus. It's been in readings, it's been in prayers. And if you are reading through the Gospels, uh, you'll find that certain themes and ideas, and uh, I'll give you one other piece of advice uh, along with whatever other of many good translations that we have of the Scripture. Uh, One of the really good things about the old RSV and the ESV that I usually preach from uh, compared to some other translations, is that they have uh, what's been called a concordance effect. And that is they almost always try to use the same English word, if it's fitting, to translate given Hebrew words and the the Greek parallels in the New Testament. Whereas some other translations that are focused on the nuances of East versions, wonderful translation, the New American Standard, uh, tend to try to get the nuance of the Hebrew or the Greek word in every exact spot. Well, the advantage of the concordance effect is if you read the Bible a lot, and it's why I think it's good for a church's Bible to be one like the ESV, you'll start seeing certain concepts that you go, wait a minute, I read that in Isaiah. Uh, as you hear a verse in the Gospels, you hear a verse here, and all of a sudden you start seeing connections, you start seeing themes. And to understand a lot of passages... Uh, it's helpful to see those themes. This is one of them. Let's uh, help us understand it by quickly walking through some of the high spots in Peter and the other disciples' experience since we heard what they heard from Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. We're at the end of chapter 17 this morning. Can only hit high spots, but what happens in 14 
through the early part of 17. If you've got a Bible where you can flip pages or scroll screens easily, I'm just going to hit high spots. Matthew 14, the beginning of the chapter. John the Baptist gets arrested, imprisoned, ultimately beheaded. Uh, John's disciples go and tell Jesus about it. And Herod, the Tetrarch, who put John to death, is confused. He thinks that John has come back from the dead when he hears about all of Jesus' wonder workings and teachings and miracles. Later in that chapter, Jesus withdraws because of some of the conflict that's brewing and heads out into the wilderness and he feeds a crowd of 5,000. A little later in Matthew 14, uh, Jesus, after the feeding, has gone up in the hills to pray and between 3 and 6 a.m., he walks out onto the lake, on the lake, in the dark. And you know the rest of the story. Uh, Peter uh, is in focus here in this section of Matthew and uh, He's so excited about what Jesus is doing. He says, can I do it, Lord? (laughs) And he gets out of the boat, and then he's distracted by the distressing weather, and he starts sinking. And Jesus grabs him and takes him into the boat, and then the winds are stilled. Matthew 15, the Pharisees, the scribes, come from Jerusalem, and they criticize Jesus' disciples because they're not washing their hands right before dinner. That was a really big deal to them. And Jesus, instead of being uh, calm and kind and nice, uh, uh, talks to them about their devious ways of abusing the law and not honoring uh, their father and their mother and says, in vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines and commandments of men. And he calls the teachers of the people together and teaches the crowds about the fact that it isn't what goes into the mouth, like food eaten with unwashed hands, Uh, that condemns us, but it's what comes out of the mouth from hearts that need to be cleansed and broken. So Jesus is framing his message in word and deed, and then he goes off because more conflicts building all the way up into modern-day Lebanon to Tyre and Sidon, and there's that wonderful story of his healing uh, uh, a Gentile woman's daughter, and uh, There's almost some teasing going on when he says that the food uh, and his work, you know, is not for the Gentiles, but, uh, and you can read it to get the word. Some wonder how did that come out, but you look at what happens and immediately Jesus uses what he said as her faith is displayed to heal her daughter. The Pharisees come to him after, in between, there's been another feeding of a large group, a miracle, Chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees come to him and they want a sign from heaven as if he hasn't been doing many. And he tells them they're not going to get any sign except the sign of Jonah. And he's prophesying, telling them that something compared very specifically to Jonah's going under the water when he should have died but was kept alive in the great fish and came out three days later. That's the sign that they're going to get but it's veiled in parabolic language so that they don't quite understand it. Chapter 16, uh, he's out on the lake with the disciples and they get to the other side, they forgot to buy bread. You would have thought they might have thought of that after the two feedings of the 5,000 plus and 4,000 plus. And Jesus says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they don't understand that he's talking about teaching. You know, and, and not food. Uh, by the way, uh, there are great blessings. Uh, this is free. It's an aside. Uh, 
but I get concerned as a pastor that uh, it's so easy to start listening to people whose background and training you don't know uh, on things on the internet and, and other places. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be willing to test out people's teaching and get things from new people, uh, but we need to know if people have been grounded in trustworthy ways and study in trustworthy ways. And if you're not sure you know how to do that, I would say be careful uh, whom you spend a lot of time with. I'm not thinking of any one thing in particular here. I just hear a lot of things uh, over the years and contemporaneously on that kind of issue. So, chapter 16, Simon confesses uh, Jesus as the Son of the living God. And then from that time on, Jesus, verse 21 of 16, begins to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And he even in 1624 calls the disciples to deny themselves and take up a cross. That must have been an interesting phrase before the crucifixion to them, that they were to take up a cross. A cross? It's an instrument of death. It's something they needed to learn about and to follow him. Chapter 17 uh, begins with the transfiguration and Peter and James and John alone being taken up on the mountain and uh, Jesus uh, shines, the light shines, Moses and Elijah are with him and they speak as Luke tells us explicitly of Jesus' exodus. In other words, how is Jesus' ministry going to end? We know how Moses ended, we know how Jesus uh, how Elijah's ended, uh, how is Jesus going to exit on the cross? That the grace of God uh, is going to come through a cross. What a strange and unusual message. We need to understand anew regularly how strange it is. And when they come down off the mountain, he tells the three, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And then the disciples were struggling with healing a young boy with a seizures and, and a demon uh, and couldn't do it. And Jesus uh, steps in and immediately does it. I hope you're seeing some tensions if you had been walking with Jesus and the disciples. He's preparing them for life without him bodily with him. And then he's doing something that tells him how much they need him even though he's telling them that he's going to leave them and he's going to die. And I think that's why in the end of the beginning of our text, it says that Peter and the others were very distressed. They had a good reason to be distressed, didn't they? They had left everything and begun to follow him and, uh, and assumed he was going to be with them and bring the kingdom in, and, and now they're finding distress. Uh, maybe some of you... Uh, became a Christian and uh, went through that same kind of struggle. Uh, uh, you, know, you found Jesus answering some of your questions and then all of a sudden you felt like you were alone and you needed to be taught, and this text is one of the ones that teaches it, that we're not alone, uh, that we can trust Him. Uh, UPC's not alone, even though there have been pastoral changes we're in the midst of. We need to be reminded of what Jesus is like. In our first few weeks, we've been, as I said, looking at parables of the kingdom, but now I think we could call this one of the parables of grace. 
And given Peter's distress and uncertainty over Jesus introducing his death, let's take a look at it. How Jesus uh, stirred through this teaching and his actions, Peter's trust. Let me read it one more time just so it's in front of you. Verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter. The two drachma tax was an annual tax related to the temple. Every Jewish adult male had to give what's roughly the equivalent of two days' wages to support the ministry of the temple. And so that's what's going on here. It's not Caesar and the formal, that side of the government. It's, it's like a church tax, in a sense. And the Greek uh, almost expects uh, that Peter's answer is going to be, uh, yes, uh, we, might have, we might better translate it, uh, uh, your teacher pays the tax, doesn't he? Assuming that he does. And Peter says, yes, he does. Now, we don't know whether uh, Jesus had paid it in previous years. We're not told much. But he assumes in answering, and maybe he just wanted to look good before the guy. We don't know. And Jesus, uh, when Peter goes into the house, speaks to Peter before, G- before Peter can say anything. Uh, there are paragraphs in commentaries about this. Uh, guess what? We don't know much. Uh, did Jesus overhear the conversation? Uh, maybe. You know, uh, we live in Florida. A lot of us in newer houses have double-paned windows, and you can't hear very much what's going on outside. Uh, houses weren't like that in those days, and uh, uh, Jesus may very well have overheard the conversation. Perhaps uh, our Heavenly Father uh, revealed to Jesus what was going on with Peter, but all we know is that uh, Jesus sees a teachable moment, and so uh, he asks Peter a question. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or others? And that's all the Greek says, sons or others. And the commentators go all over the place on that because, uh, uh, you know, some situations, the kings and leaders of an empire uh, uh, that have brought in all kinds of outsiders, they make the outsiders uh, pay uh, all the freight, uh, and the insiders get by cheap. But probably more likely, it's the reality that if you're uh, a prince in the king's family, uh, you don't have to worry about the taxes. Uh, The king takes care of it all. And so when Peter says from others, Jesus says to him, then the sons are free. We had a great discussion in staff meeting, and I really appreciate the questions and comments that the staff make. And, uh, and, and it brought up uh, the realities that uh, and it reminds me that we've got uh, to not look at the scripture like it's this theology book that we go to the index and get the answer for a, an exact question. But we've got to read the context and say, what's going on here? Because one of the staff mentioned something about uh, that led us to talk about the uh, place where Jesus asked for the coin and said, whose image is on it? Caesar's. Well, then render to Caesar what's Caesar's. Uh, But here it's an issue of Jesus and who he is in relationship to the temple. And Jesus is, in effect, teaching from this Uh, that he's the Lord of the Sabbath and he's the Lord of the temple. And we know the scripture that actually he is going to be the new temple, but we're into the already and the not yet. He's already here as Lord of the Sabbath in the incarnation on the earth. But he's not the new temple yet, is he? 
So he's getting the disciples ready for what is to come. So again, we've got to understand the context. And so this quizzical, I, I, I can't help but believe that uh, Jesus in uh, verse 27 uh, has a twinkle in his eye as he says to Peter, here's what I'm going to do about it. Uh, I don't want to give offense, even though you are one of the new sons of the kingdom uh, and you don't really owe it. Uh, so here's what you should do. You should just go down to the Sea of Galilee and it's the only place in the New Testament where somebody fishes with a hook. It's always with nets in the other passages. Uh, and he says, uh, you know, cast uh, the hook out there. You're going to catch a fish and the first fish that you catch, uh, there'll be a coin in its mouth and it'll be enough to pay for you and me. And that's exactly uh, you know, what is described. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, uh, to show you that we're not really required to pay it, uh, we're not going to take it out of our money bag that Judas has got and maybe get Judas upset, but, uh, but God's going to provide so that we don't offend anybody in this situation and, and just go do this. And we don't get the rest of the story, for those of you that are old enough to remember Paul Harvey. Uh, but um, that's kind of what's going on. Uh, so Jesus has come back into definitive Jewish territory and immediately an issue of how believers are to relate to the Old Testament tradition uh, is raised, this temple tax. And what I most want you to get from reading this section of Scripture uh, is that we read the Scripture as believers not to get principles in the main, not to have an authority from which we can speak in the main because we're the expert scribes of the law, and therefore you have to listen to us. I won't tell you the name, though he's long gone to heaven, uh, but I had a, a fellow staff member with crew that uh, went to visit the pastor of one of the largest churches in Houston, and when you went into this pastor's office, you not only had to sit in front of him, he was a very big man, uh, but with a larger-than-life portrait of him in full military dress from his military years that was behind his desk when you sat down in the office. Uh, and I believe he sometimes called himself the world's greatest New Testament Greek scholar. Uh, that's not why we read the Scripture, so that we can do that, and even pastors can be led uh, astray. We read the Scriptures as a way of heart and heart affection, to love Jesus and to think about life and people. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. How do I know that? Well, look, just listen. Won't, won't be there long enough for you to get there and back. John 5, 39, Jesus says to the Jewish authorities, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness of me. And so the scriptures are a means of falling in love with Jesus, not lording it over other people. John 17, Jesus had spoken these words and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's not some other knowledge that is salvation. It's knowledge that helps you know Jesus and trust him and have affection for him. And that's why Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of him, God, you are in Christ. God, by the Spirit, has drawn you to Christ. And Christ has become 
to you wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And Jesus is removing pressure from Peter to handle this temple tax situation. But he's teaching him about how much he is able to provide for Peter once he goes away. Not to mention the new comforter, the other comforter, the Holy Spirit who will be sent. So Jesus is fulfilling the law and the temple, not doing away with either of them ultimately because he is the fulfillment of the law and he is the new temple. I would have loved to have seen the look on Jesus' face as he told Peter about the fish. And I would love to have seen the look on Peter's face. Uh, that alone ought to teach you the inadequacy of all the different films about Jesus, and I'm not being down on them. I'm just saying understand that when a director and the actors have to play the scene a certain way, they can only do one slice. And I don't think anybody could make this scene in the fullness that it was except what it was between the real Jesus and the real Peter. Because there's a mystery, there's a lightness, and yet a dead seriousness about it all at the same time. Peter and the others are distressed about Jesus' death, not simply because they have growing deep affections for Jesus, but because think about the uncertainty about everything that Jesus dying now would create amongst the disciples. And this is the first time they're having to think about it in this teaching. I said look both ways before you cross the street. Did anybody look ahead to see what happens in the first paragraph of 18? It's the discussion amongst the disciples of who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven amongst them. Now we know from some things the gospels say that some of that is just their arrogance. We even have one of the mothers coming and asking Jesus that her sons get the right and the left hand spot. But I think there's more going on than that because I think we, we know our, our nature as human beings. I think they probably got into that discussion because it was almost a, a distraction, a way of changing the subject for what happens when Jesus goes away. And, and they're thinking about who's going to be in charge? I mean, if Jesus is gone, what happens? And out of that comes then the self-interest that is part of the story. Who's going to lead them? In some ways, I think Jesus' fun with the fish and the coin is a more, more light-hearted way to say to his own disciples, uh, Peter, my father and I are going to take care of you. And that's what I want to remind you about this morning, whatever your situation that Jesus says, my Father and I are going to take care of you. And you're going to learn more about that the more you learn about me. It's a teaser, if I can use that word, for what Paul will write in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things, all the suffering and fear? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. In other words, once they knew the cross, if, if the Heavenly Father had done the unthinkable thing and really given His Son's life to pay the penalty and the judgment and the wrath against us, if we know that's true, how can we fear that He'll take care of us in the other things and that we'll have what we need? And that's 
the final section. Trusting Jesus uh, is not some kind of a side uh, solution to smaller difficulties. You need to trust Jesus because he can give you a pill to handle your distress. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's the foundational need. Trusting Jesus is the foundational answer to everything if we know what our real situation is. Life is stressful. Uh, when I first conceived of this focus of distress and trusting in Jesus as a legitimate way to preach and focus this text, uh, I immediately thought of when I first got to know uh, my pastor friend Steve in, in Boston way back in 1969. Uh, I was with crew, he was pastor of First Pres Quincy, and I went down one day to uh, catch up with him uh, at his church office study, and I no sooner got inside the study than he said to me, uh, follow me. He wasn't trying to be Jesus. Uh, but we headed over to the man's next door of the house, and, uh, and he uh, yelled in the door, and I'm leaving for a little bit, and called Barnabas, come here. And uh, the fiercest, my favorite fiercest German shepherd I've ever known uh, came bounding out the door, whom I was the only other person than Steve that dared go in the house other than Anna and the girls. Uh, if Barnabas was in there guarding it, uh, I learned the secret code of how to talk to him. Uh, but so Barnabas and Steve and I get in the car, and he says, let's go. And so we head down to the Southern Beltway around Boston, uh, uh, to the Blue Hills and to uh, one of the ponds that's there. Uh, we get out of the car. He pops the trunk. He grabs a rod and reel. We go to the water. He casts a baitless weighted hook into the water. And we're standing there. One thing I've learned occasionally, I need to learn it more often, is when to zip my lips. And I was just quiet for a while. And then finally I said, uh, Steve, uh, there's no bait on the hook. What are we doing? And he said, you probably noticed I'm uptight. I'm distressed. And it really helps to come out here. Plus Barnabas likes it and I do this often and I wanted you to come with me. Uh, and I put the hook in the water because I feel less stupid if people wonder why I'm just standing here. And I learned two things. I learned that pastors are often distressed. But I learned something else. It's really good for them to talk about it and have friends, brothers and sisters with whom they can dare talk about it. And that's what he did. And a friendship that's still going from 1969, you know, developed. Because distress is a part of life especially in the brokenness. I've had conversations uh, just this week, some with tears, about distress from relational struggles, uh, about living with cancer, about dealing with heart disease, about a family suicide, and about waiting for the death of a beloved parent. One week. And some of you have had those conversations. I mean, that's life, isn't it? It's the reality. And you don't have to be old to learn about distress. I learned when my 11th grade only sibling brother was killed in a freak accident and when he was in the 11th grade. And when I was in the 11th grade, my mom almost died of breast cancer. And I grew up way too fast in some ways from all of that and began to learn 
about distress, but this sermon's not about me. Those distresses are mere pointers to the ultimate needs we all have, which is why trusting Jesus is not a means to short-term solutions. But it's the only answer to the ultimate source of all stress. There are a lot of reasons why one of the five solas, the, the onlys, to put the Latin and English of the Reformation, are what they are, but... Uh, the solus Christus, Christ alone, is there because the essence of distress is when we see that if God needed to send the only mediator, his own eternal son to take on flesh, to live sinlessly, to suffer and to die at our hands and in our place, then he is the only solution to the deserved, earned judgment and wrath of God, that we as rebels, we use a lot of different words. I'm not down on the word brokenness, but frankly, I think sometimes in evangelicalism, it's become an excuse for not talking about rebellion and wrath. And that the distress that I ought to fear is not matters of my health, and my physical death, but it's the spiritual reality of where everyone, including David O'Dowd, stands apart from Christ alone. Our real distress can only be removed by Jesus, the one and only mediator between man and God. Brothers and sisters, rejoice. A greater than the temple has walked among us. One who became the temple a Lord of the Sabbath who cares for his disciples, even bold yet bumbling ones like Peter, who with a twinkle in an eye tells Peter about the fish and says, in effect, Peter, I got this. And if you're on your deathbed, Jesus can say to you, Susan, David, Sam, whatever your name is, fill in the blank. I got this. <laughs> Amen, sister. <laughs> this comforter brings to a tender-hearted but still confused Peter, confidence and comfort. The one to trust, to grow in passionate affection towards is Jesus. And by his cross, our discipler Jesus will be a place of safety for us as we walk with him and one another. None of our distress matches the first separation between the eternal Son and the eternal Father when Jesus was on the cross. And as in just a moment we sing the power of the cross, I don't want you to visualize what Jesus' face looks like. We'll find out in heaven. But I want you to visualize his arms of grace as being the safe place that you need this day and every day to deal with distress both the short-term kind and the eternal kind. I give thanks to God. I hope you do too.